Ohio Gazimas, Oname wa Chris Desmond, and this is the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. This is a show where we explore the science, the stories, and the strategies of getting out of our comfort zone so we can find where the magic happens for us. Uh, and I'm sorry if I butchered that Japanese introduction. Um, it's been a while since my fifth form Japanese classes, but the reason that I'm doing that is that I am talking today to a guy that I met first met at university by the name of James Cherry, who is a black belt in jiu-jitsu. And James has previously taught uh, jiu-jitsu in Japan and now is currently teaching it in Whangarei in New Zealand. So we have a bit of a chat about, about martial arts and about the competition uh, aspect around martial arts. But we're also talking about taking the joy from the little things and taking joy from the process rather than the end goal. How we talk about the strive for perfection and why we're never going to actually achieve perfection, but that's okay. We talk about how James gets over procrastination and stops that from happening. We have a chat uh, about when he first got to Japan as well, not being able to speak any Japanese and having very few people that spoke any form of English around him. We talk about why you should train while you're tired. We talk about pushing to the limits physically. And we also talk about why you learn so much more when you lose than when you win. Now, I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. So if this is your first time listening, make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app or on iTunes so that you get these episodes coming every week. Uh, If you've been listening for a while and you like what you hear, make sure that you leave us a rating and a review. It just helps get uh, the podcast out into more ears and minds, helps get these ideas out there, but also helps us push us up their rankings so that we can get uh, some guests with, with some bigger names on too. But the best way that you can share uh, support us is to share this episode out with all your mates um, on social media or just around the water cooler. Thank you guys so much for getting uncomfortable with James and I today. Cherry, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast, mate. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. That sounds like a very official welcome. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I do like <laughs> I do like a, an official welcome. And for the people who are listening, we've been chatting for like the last fifteen or twenty minutes already. Um, James and I went to went to university together, and like we probably haven't caught up for oh maybe like tw- eleven, twelve years now. Yeah, eh? yeah, yeah, it was definitely more than ten. Yeah, so it's been a it's been a little little while. So we've just been reminiscing and enjoying how um, Facebook wasn't around while we were at university, um, mm. because otherwise that would have been quite uncomfortable looking back on some of the stuff that uh, that happened then. Yeah, I think there's I've got one photo on the very first photo on my Facebook is from university, and 
That's but this, I just I need to get rid of it, you know. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that most people can't see it. I think I've put the privacy on myself, but you know, there's some things that shouldn't go recorded, right? <laughs> definitely, mate. Definitely. Mm. Um, James, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, mate? Um, where where you're from? Where you grew up? Were there kind of any big experiences in your younger years years that have shaped you as a person today? Um. I guess I've I've moved around a lot would be one. Uh, I was born in Whangarei, I guess. Uh, I my parents got divorced when I was pretty young, which unfortunately seems to be like the norm for a lot of people these days. But uh, I've sort of lived in the Northland area most of my life, um, and then went to Whangarei Boys High School. Um, went there for the majority of my sort of. Uh, high school period I think went to Brainbow College briefly um and then I was like I need to get out of here I moved to Dunedin so went picked the university as far as I could get from from Northland um and went why to school you, and um, met you why did you pick uh one that far away uh I don't know I think it was something to do with just trying to my change my experience of the world um there's definitely a very different culture i think in the south island especially down the bottom of the south island compared mm. to up north um but yeah i went down there and met you that's mm-hmm. sort of our the origin of our relationship i suppose yeah yeah definitely um Cool. So, like, looking to looking to change the experience, you change your experience of the world. Like, up up to that point, had you like not had a great experience of the world, or it was just you felt, hey, something something needs to be different. I need to go and do something else. It's so funny. Like, I think I think that if you'd asked me when I was younger, like if I'd had a great experience or not, I might have said no. But now. Like thinking about it in retrospect, I think that I did. Uh, I think that I was very lucky. Um, I think that even though I like, I kind of grew up in a single parent household. I had loving people around me all the time. I never sort of went for to want for anything. Um, always had food. You know, I never suffered like you know what reality is for some other people around the world. You know. Mm, mm, yeah, and I think. Like growing up in growing up in Northland in the eighties and nineties is uh yeah, it was it was it's nice up there, eh? Um I yeah. used to live in Kaitaia for three years and um Oh really? It's just yeah, it's just a oh, lovely, I never knew that. lovely spot. No, no, no. I'm just kind of letting little little bits slip out about oh, me every now and that's then. Interesting. Eh? That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Only till I was um from when I was four until when I was seven, so it was uh <laughs> Like I don't remember heaps of it, but I remember having a lot of fun and um, yeah, just the beaches and the lakes being being amazing. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons that I that I love the ocean and love the water so much now is kind of growing up in that mm-hmm. environment. Yeah, I think you take these sorts of things for granted when you don't when you live there for a long period of time. You start to take that sort of stuff for granted today, um, but the beaches are definitely awesome. I don't think I went into the water once—no, once or twice—when we were in Dunedin. Um, I think one of them was one of those hazing events we had for our hall of residence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, like, 
I went swimming a few times in Dunedin in the sea and you can stay in for about five minutes and then that's that's it, you come out. And, and this is like middle of February and the height of summer as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, you're, I think you're right with that as well, is that um, when, you're, when you're living somewhere, then it's really easy just to kind of get caught up in the, in the sameness of it. Yeah, um, yeah, and then you, then you go away. You go overseas, or you go and travel to another part of of New Zealand, and and you, you look around and you think, man, this this place is beautiful. Yeah. But actually, if yeah. you stop and take the time out of your life, um, out of the kind of the busyness and the bustle of your of your world, and just have a little bit of a look around where you live, um, mm. it's it's amazing. It's beautiful. Like I I take our dog for a walk in the morning, and then. Um, I'm lucky enough at the moment to kind of be walking her while the sun's coming up. So yeah, I've seen some okay. pretty awesome uh, sunsets coming up and the clouds looking amazing and the, the like the ranges behind uh, Wellington just kind of uh, the, the sun hitting them first thing in the morning. And it's just, it's just gorgeous. Eh? And it's just, it's nice to, to stop and take a little bit of time to, to appreciate that and appreciate where you are with it too. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think taking the time to sort of enjoy that is, is something we we forget about sometimes. Eh? Mm. Um, I think this, like one of the benefits of walking, right? Particularly if you're interested in doing it later in the evenings and stuff like that, you get to experience sort of time for yourself and get to experience the beauty. Particularly in New Zealand, we're very lucky with that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's really important. It's good. This is in a meditative sense. It's good, right? Mm, mm, yeah, for sure, mate. Um, we've we've kind of hijacked that uh, that time that timeline a little bit from you. Mm. So last time we we left you at university. What did you go down there to study? Uh, I went. Oh, oh, it's kind of a little bit um, embarrassing now. Uh, I started as a theatre English major, double major, um, and then. I liked the English, but I stopped enjoying the theatre so much. Um, so I started doing film and media, um, and then I dropped the theatre, and then I did the English all the way to the end, but I couldn't do my honours degree. I uh, couldn't do a double honours in one year, so I didn't end up doing it. Um, so after that, I stuck around for another – Just, bro, I had to have a little segue in here – I started training quite a lot in my first year of university, um, and that's one of the reasons why I stuck around to do postgraduate studies in philosophy. But uh, started training in what? Um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is sort of my main field, if you like now. Um, but I started doing a kung fu style called Shao Chi Chuan, um, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced the the Mandarin, but uh, it was. It was very interesting martial arts style. Um, it's very focused on good posture. It's called the, they call it the stress-free way, which is really interesting when you compare that to what jiu-jitsu's literal translation is, which is the gentle art. Um, maybe that's part of the appeal of jiu-jitsu for me. But um, it was always all about like correct, proper alignment and generating force with like minimal effort and you know like high tier striking stuff you know um and i was doing that and there was no real sparring and i i, I don't know why i i guess i really enjoy the sparring but um 
they don't encourage it because it's too dangerous. Like, you know, if you hit someone full force, you could really hurt someone. You can see it in the UFC, right? Um, so it doesn't really gel well with the whole stress-free way when you've got bruises and black eyes and things like <laughs> yeah. this. Um, so I started doing a little bit of groundwork. Now, what groundwork is, uh, do you have much martial arts experience? Not really, other than watching movies. Hmm. Do you do you watch the UFC this sort of stuff? Like, have uh, you seen yeah, UFC occasionally, before? Occasionally, occasionally, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, basically, what groundwork is is it's it's sort of grappling, it's wrestling on the ground. Now, uh, I really started enjoying that because I found that was the only the only martial art that I've done with size didn't really matter, um, which was a bit of an eye opener for me because. Uh, there was a few situations where I was training in the Kung Fu school where size definitely was a massive advantage and there was nothing I could do about it. Um, and as being someone who's a little bit smaller, um, I think I was like 60, 63 or 65 kgs when I first started. Um, it was really scary. Um, so when I found an art that uh, sort of allowed me to get around that, it I think I just fell in love with it, really. Mm. So, what size um, dudes were you kind of pitted up against to start with? Um, so, in the kung fu school, there was some big guys. There was like ninety kgs, that sort of thing. But once I started doing Brazilian jiu jitsu, like the actual proper sparring, I think the smallest guy in the gym was like eighty kgs. So basically, everyone had sort of eighteen, fifteen kilogram advantage. There was one dude in there that was. Uh, oh, he must have been 150 kgs, one of the guys. He was, yeah, it was big. It was at least double my body weight. Um, and, man, I got smashed. I got smashed those first two years. Um, I always had bruises. I was just covered in finger. You get these bruises that are like fingerprint bruises from people grabbing you on the arms and stuff. Um, it looks like you've been in like a full-scale like war. Sometimes you have a black eye and you, you know, you have bruises all over your arms and your shins will be covered in bruises and you have a limp because you kind of rolled your ankle doing a takedown the week before or something like definitely start getting pretty haggard from rolling with the big guys. With getting beaten down like by all these big dudes. What kept you going back, James, in those, in those first couple of years? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I have this really like annoyingly stubborn personality and I believe that it could work. And the, the sensations that I was having when I was training, like being able to manipulate people's weight, like making someone really tired just by controlling my body positioning and things like this was really, really enjoyable. Once you start seeing getting over that lip of getting smashed and ground into the ground by, you know, a hundred kilogram man. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I guess I couldn't give up because I enjoyed it. The moments that I was sort of doing well so much that I just kept doing it, I suppose. Um, it really destroyed my university, uh, sort of scores at the last couple of years, put it that way. I was just full-blown obsessed. And maybe that's that's what it is as well, a little bit of obsession about martial arts, I suppose. And it's it's interesting because it's sort of like an endless sort of journey towards perfection that you'll never reach because it's not possible to get there. 
unless they figure out a way of like putting our brains in robot bodies or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. with yeah. that, like with that journey towards perfection, and I think like I, correct me if I'm I'm wrong. That's a very sort of uh, martial arts thing is that you're always kind of striving for for perfection with it. Is that like a, a concept that you've always um, been okay with, that you're working towards perfection, but then you're never going to quite get there? Or is that something that you've learnt through uh, through martial arts and it's taking you a bit of time to uh, to sort of really come to terms with? Um, I think that like early on, the striving for perfection you can you can feel particularly when you're young you feel like it's it's an achievable thing but the more experience i have you know you take joy in the little things that that are are more important than striving for perfection so um i've got a couple of guys at the gym here that i've been teaching for sort of two or so years and uh just recently, a couple of them have started being able to submit me. So that's that's sort of a checkmate in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, and that's that, to me, I think has come to be more important than striving to be the world champion or the best in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something like that. I don't think that that's possible. Um, and I think that was an important step for ego as well, to understand that that is just it's the joy of the journey rather than the striving to be the best. Mm, that's that's very cool and i think like that's a that's a massive kind of metaphor for life as well as that especially with that like I, I know i found this myself as when i was younger i was like ah yeah maybe i can maybe i can be the best at at this and kind of you you just go go really hard but kind of on the flip side of that coin as well is that um in things that you didn't think you could be the best at sometimes hmm. you wouldn't try yeah because you didn't yeah. want to you, you thought oh no there's no there's no chance in me being the best i won't uh, i won't invest myself in this i'll just mm. kind of try and do enough to do enough to get by but yeah. Uh, yeah i think it's a like it's it's a challenging mental construct to get your head around is that you'll never reach perfection mm with it is mm. that there's always there's always something else to learn or there's always um, there's always someone that's going to be better than you, or even mm. if you are, even if you are the best, there's going to be someone that was better than you that's been before you, and someone mm. better than you that's coming after you as well. Mm. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it's yeah, it's a it's a long, slow process uh, of many. I'm going to put failures in parentheses there, but many, many failures to uh, kind of figure out that hey, actually, perfection isn't the perfection isn't the the thing that's going to excite me and make me the most happy. As you say, it's the mm-hmm. taking the joy in the journey and enjoying enjoying the little stuff. And I think, like like you, I love to I love to train. I love to move my body, and like I that that is something that that enjoys me so if i'm training for an event actually the the training is is very cool and i've been Mm. trying to take that out of the the physical for me as well Mm. um and actually put it in the put it in the other stuff like with the like with the podcast um 
I've, I've over the last week I've had a few technical difficulties that have been that have been a bit challenging and um, oh, yeah. actually uh, if I was just focused on the outcome and like for short periods of time like a, an hour or two I'd just be really pissed off just because I was focused on the outcome mm. rather than focused on kind of working working through what I needed to work through and, and enjoying that. So do you think that was procrastination or was that just like not focusing so much on the outcome and worrying about other stuff? Um, in terms of the, the technical difficulties that yeah. I was having? No, no, no. They were yeah. actually like they were like software based technical difficulties. Ah. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Which were ah. which were frustrating. Um oh. but yeah, procrastination again is a <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it a technical difficulty, but it's definitely a difficulty that I... <laughs> a human technical yeah, difficulty. Yeah, a human difficulty that I struggle with at times as well, is that, uh, yeah, that you know you need to, to do things. Um, yeah. And sometimes things that aren't the most exciting part of the process, so mm. you do put them off and it just kind of pushes pushes things out. Um mm. Do you have, like, speaking of procrastination, this is, a, again, a massive segue, but do you have anything that you uh, that you use to stop yourself procrastinating or to get uh, back on track when you are procrastinating? Now, I, I am a terrible procrastinator, I'm not going to lie, um, and I find the, the worst excuses not to do stuff. Um, I've got some business stuff that I have to do, but I just, I just don't do it. I just do everything but the thing that I need to do sometimes. Um, but... Yeah, I for me it's habit. Uh, the most important way for to prevent procrastination or prevent you know you get those moments where you're like, "Oh, I don't really want to train tonight." Or I don't really want to go for a walk. Or I don't really want to wash the dishes. Or I don't really want to do that. Um I found that those sort of situations are easily broken by habit. So, um I don't have a choice not to train. Um and that that makes it very easy for me to continually avoid procrastination with with the jujitsu stuff. And I think it's very important with jujitsu is to train when you're very tired, um, because that's the reality of the world. Uh, if you're walking down the street, and I don't know, New, New Zealand, we're pretty lucky. We're not going. No one's going to walk up and assault us or try to rob us or anything like that. But if we're in a situation that's very stressful, um, we're going to be tired. Okay. Uh, at work, we're going to be tired and we still have to do it right. Um, I think that training while you're tired pushes you past that point of really, like you, you're talking about being uncomfortable. Nothing is worse than being awake for like 36 hours and then having a 150 kilogram man like lying their whole body weight against your face. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's a very intense experience and, I think that that yeah, that's sorry. I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, th I, I think that avoiding avoiding the procrastination is is just part of part of having good habits, and yeah, yeah, just that's it. Cool. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. Eh? It's it's kind of identifying those things that you want to work on and just creating them as as habits, so it's easier to mm. do them than not to do them and yeah. i really like your really like your idea about training while you're tired as well mm. and because yeah it's you're not always going to be in kind of uh 
sort of optimal state when you need to to perform mm. optimally i mean yeah. ideally you will most of the time but there are going to be times where you haven't had a good sleep or you're a bit mm. under the weather that you need to perform and if you haven't trained yourself to perform in those situations then mm. quite often you're you're going to fall over with that well i think i think that if you're used to training under high pressure a lot and then suddenly you're performing in a, in a situation where you actually have had a lot of sleep and you have had good diet and you have had no jet lag or whatever, then you perform very exceptionally, I think. Um, so in, in a way, it can kind of guide you to very, very good performances by working a lot under stress. Um, and sort of, I, I know the podcast is about being uncomfortable, um, but I think that, you know, in training in those situations, you're incredibly uncomfortable when you're tired or you're fatigued or you're jet lagged or you're dehydrated or whatever situations are. Then when you're actually competing in perfect situations, it's, you have a good chance of doing really well, you know. Definitely, yeah, yeah. And I think like that's part of the premise of the podcast as well is that, um, I mean, we live in a, we live a, usually a very comfortable existence. Yeah. Um, but life is going to throw some challenges at us. Mm sooner or later and if we if we aren't like equipped to deal with those challenges if we've just kind of gone and lived in this this comfortable existence we haven't actually made ourselves strategically uncomfortable Mm. to to build our uh resilience or build Mm. our uh, anti-fragility yeah what do you mean by anti-fragility just yeah, anti-fragility <laughs> is like, I mean, resilience is like the the way I re- view resilience is that it's like, it's, it's putting up with something. It's getting, it's getting through something. Yeah. yeah. Um, anti, anti-fragility is like to, fra- if something's fragile, it's, it's easily broken. Yeah, um, so yeah. it, it's kind of the the opposite of that is that we're mm. we we become more unbreakable. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. Right. That's kind of what I what I mean. Um, mm. I just bought so, a, I just bought a book called Anti Fragility, and I haven't started it yet. But yeah. so my my definition may change after I've read that. But that's kind okay. of what I'm what I'm thinking there at the moment. Yeah. But if we like, if we haven't trained ourselves to to build those characteristics, mm. then we're not going to have them in in those times of need. Yeah. Mm. So it's interesting you say that because, like, we sort of we talked around the subject a little bit with the, the training and stuff like this. Um, I You mentioned that you really enjoy the training. Um, I think in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the training is, in a way, it's not very pleasant. Um, I sort of sort of gave mention to it with people like leaning weight on you and things like this. Um, but I feel like it's one of those sort of activities where you are constantly building resilience and you're constantly working on anti-fragility. You can't be fragile when someone's lying on you, right, trying to break your arm or trying to choke you into unconsciousness. And uh, that's really interesting. It's interesting that it ties into the training so directly. Mm, mm. And James, I'm gonna I'm gonna swing it back round again, mate. To uh, yeah, yeah. back to the end of university. So yeah. um, after after like training in jujitsu uh, yeah. in New Zealand, you uh, you came up to to Wellington for a little bit. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I worked in mental health a little bit while I was at university, um, and I enjoyed it, and I was sort of, I don't know if I was pursuing sort of an interest in, like, sort of being in psychology, I guess, or something. I don't know, but I was just, I applied for the JIT program in my last year of university, um, and I needed something to tide me over in the meantime to find out, because the the process of getting into the JET program is ridiculous. There's like thousands of people applying for very few positions. Um, it's a it's a three stage sort of interview process. You have to get you have to send them a letter with like a form with like two written uh, references from people. Then they take that. Then you go into the the next stage and have to write another essay and do like another interview. And then there's another stage after that. Um, Can you just explain waiting. what the what the jet program is for the yeah for the listeners? yeah that's how that's how you oh the jet program is a it's a Japanese English teaching uh, sort of exchange. The idea behind it is to bring um, young foreigners to Japan so Japanese people can experience foreigners, basically. Um, Japanese people don't leave Japan that much, surprisingly. Um, so they've kind of got this program to create like a relationship with foreigners for kids and things like that. You've been to Japan, there's moments where you walk around and you don't see anyone that's non-Japanese, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very interesting. I, Yeah, so... I spent five years teaching English. Uh, I know it's the place I taught was really interesting, and I'll I'll come around to that later. But um, that's that's what happened. I I was doing mental health in Wellington for six months. Applied for the program in Wellington. Uh, did they were the mental health work was crazy. Be, pretty badly paid, uh, like four on two off four on shifts, and you'd alternate from mornings to evenings. So you'd have like. You'd get your body rhythm right, and then you'd be doing four evening shifts, and then you'd be getting your body right, and then doing four morning shifts. So it was quite uh, hard work. But I eventually got on the jet program and moved to Japan, to this little island. Uh, there was 600 people lived on the island. I was the only non uh, non Japanese person there, so it was quite a quite an interesting experience going yeah. from being in Wellington and and moving to that situation. What's um like? I mean, what drew you to the jet program to start with? Like, what? Why oh. did you want to go to to Japan and teach English? I think it was the same drive as as going to Dunedin. I guess trying to find something new and try. I really wanted to learn how to speak Japanese. Um, so that was a motivating factor. I figured if I went to to Japan, I'd be exposed to martial arts as well. So I knew that was there. Um. When I applied for the JET program, you get to pick uh, basically what area of Japan you want to live in. You get to pick uh, what kind of schools that you want to teach at. And then uh, basically you work that way. And they never, ever give you the, the options that you choose. So most people pick Tokyo or Kyoto or Osaka because they don't know anywhere else. Um, I chose Okinawa because I knew that in Okinawa is uh, the birthplace of karate. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the place where martial arts came from. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go straight there. Um, I applied for Okinawa and I applied for uh, teaching mainly primary schools um, because I figured, ah, if you're teaching little kids, it's going to be more fun than standing around in a in a classroom properly. Uh spend a lot of time outside with the kids and stuff like that. So um, that's what I chose. And luckily enough, no one knows about Okinawa. 
Um, I think if more people knew about Okinawa, it would be very busy. Uh, it, actually, it, it surpassed Hawaii this year for tourism, um, which is really interesting. But that's how I ended up going to Japan, um, sort of the long and the short of it, I suppose. Awesome. And, I mean, did you end up teaching primary school kids over there? Yeah. So I taught from four years old to, I think they were what, junior high school. So they would have been 13 when they left the island. So there's two schools. One is a combination kindergarten, primary school, and junior high school. Um, and that one had uh, like 80 or 100 students maybe. Um, the, the kindergarten was always the busiest. And then the other primary school had 20 kids. Man. And so was there, were there any English speakers on the island? Oh, no. No, 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 no. You'd, I mean, there were, you'd meet people who could speak some English, but you would never meet English speakers. Um, yeah. Yeah. Unless you were hanging around in the tourist areas, you wouldn't, would very rarely see any non-Japanese people or people who spoke English. And yeah. did you speak, what, what level of Japanese did you speak before <laughs> you went? Uh, I could say, thank you, goodbye. And uh, I thank you, goodbye, and hello. And that's okay. all I had when I moved over. And then good, I lived it. Good. Yeah. <laughs> how, how uncomfortable was that situation when you first got there in, in regards to, like, just trying to communicate and live your life? Oh, it was just, it was so funny because when we do that, you get to Japan and you're, like, with this big group of New Zealanders. And then they send you off to your little areas. And I got to my airport and my area and I got met by more, the head of the board of education um, so in Japan that's quite an important job, it's an important person to be responsible for all the schools in your area um, and my supervisor, so my my boss so when I arrived I couldn't even communicate to my bosses um, it was, they put me up in this little hotel and sort of gestured in one direction and said something along the lines of don't go that way <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was, I have to be honest, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun not being able to communicate with people. Um, you end up being pushed back to like the most like elementary level of communication, like pointing and smiling and body language rather than, you know, you can't have quite, uh, elaborate conversations and elegant conversations in English when you're a native speaker, but, uh, the second you've put in a situation where you can't speak English anymore, uh, it's it's quite an interesting experience. My, uh, I I had a group of friends that all lived on islands like mine. Alkina um, was like 140, 160 islands maybe, um, but these guys all were in the same situation as me, and we'd meet up for dinner sort of every three months or so, and. The dinner conversation was hilarious because everyone would just be talking because they wanted to speak English. And you could see everyone was waiting for their moment to get in to start speaking English. Uh, it was, yeah, you feel deprived of your of your native language. It was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Did you, like, being in that situation, did you find that your Japanese uh, rapidly improved? Yeah, definitely. I think that if you want to, if you want to learn a language, you should you should work in that country. Um, it, yeah, I definitely felt like I learned Japanese reasonably quickly. Um, I was doing presentations, like business presentations, sort of after my second year, so I felt like I'd I've got to a high level of fluency very quickly. Yeah. Mm, awesome. What were the what were the business presentations about? Like, was that a business that you were starting or? 
Oh, that's just for for school. Just just doing like presentations for uh, like in front of all the schools and the boards of education, and teaching seminars and stuff to other English teachers. Like the Jet program sort of runs in tandem with private work, I guess, in a way. Um, so my job was I was hired by the board of education, so my job was directly contracted to them. Um, so they were my bosses. But the the Jet program sort of gets you together every now and then to to share experiences and teach people who hadn't been there as long other sort of ways of doing things or even just showing them around um, because Japan can be very uh, overwhelming. Um, a lot of people leave very quickly, I think, um, when they come over. Um, yeah, it's an intense experience, I think. You've, you've spent time in Japan. The big cities are quite intense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we we got to the point one day we were only, we were only there for two weeks that we we actually just went into this Italian restaurant and had pizza because it was <laughs> it was something that was familiar to home. We just like we just yeah. need a little bit of and and being there for a couple of hours then like kind of just refreshed us and we can get back out and get into it and um, mm. yeah eat, eat Japanese food again uh, the next yeah. day but I like, just needed that. Did you have any have anything like super rad, like a live stuff while you're over there? Did you ever experience any of that? No, I didn't. I didn't get any of that. I'm a little bit disappointed. I think that would have been it. Would have been cool. It would have been uncomfortable, but uh, yeah. I think I think the benefits of speaking Japanese in Japan is that you have a lot of experiences that you probably could never have if you didn't speak Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, and like getting into this restaurant, right, where I actually tried, you know, you see the stuff on YouTube or on Facebook or on TV sometimes of like crazy restaurants with a live stuff. Um, and I, it took me three months to get into one of these places. They were just, they're booked out. You would never have been able to find it if you walked down the street. It was just the sort of like on the second story of this apartment looking building, um, serving like live octopus and live crayfish and like live fish. And uh, I'll never forget when I got in there. I, I thought that my Japanese was bad because the waiter came to me. I didn't realize it was a live food, just, just to sort of put a little bit of intro on this. <laughs> I didn't know that it was a restaurant with living animals when I went in there. I was just like, oh, this place is always booked out. I've got to go there. I've got to try this food. Um, and I went in there and I hadn't realized what was going on. The, the waiter came up to me with my prawns. I ordered prawns. Uh, and he said, be careful because they're still moving. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, they're going to be careful. They don't jump off the plate. And I was <laughs> what? And I looked down and they were moving. And I was like, whoa. And then I looked to the table across from us. And there was a crayfish that would have been flipped upside down with the legs still waving with all the sashimi cut next to his body. Oh, my God. I was not prepared for that at all. <laughs> um, it was it was delicious. Don't get me wrong. It was the best raw prawns that I've ever had. But, yeah, that was it was a surprising experience. And I don't think I would have been able to do that if I hadn't spoke Japanese. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you, oh. if you, if you hadn't, well, if you'd known that it was going to be like a, a live food experience, uh, do you think you would have? Do you think you would have gone? Yeah, I think so. I, I, to be honest, yeah, I think I tried. I tried food that in New Zealand would not be acceptable, like whale, like whale, dolphin. Uh, you know, you don't get they don't eat dogs and stuff in in 
in Japan. I know they do in other places around the world, but they used to eat cats from what I understand. But yeah, I, for me, I like to try different foods. Uh, even if they're alive, I guess it's an experience. So, Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds, it sounds interesting. I don't know mm. if I'm disappointed that I didn't come across that when I was in Japan, but um, I'm sure the next time I go back, uh, I'll, I'll be looking out for it. Yeah. Um, and James, were you, while you were there, were you training as well? Were you, did you get into uh, martial arts in Japan? So because I lived on the little island, uh, I didn't really have anyone to train with except for people that were like have a passing interest in training. Um, there were some guys who'd done boxing, so I did some boxing with them. Uh, there was an Olympic second uh, in judo living there as well. Um, this guy was he was a dive instructor and he was obsessed with rock rugby. He was a unit of a, of a man. Um, and I used to do a little bit of judo with him. Um, but then I, I really wanted to do jiu-jitsu and I started traveling by boat from my island to the main Okinawan island um, on Friday nights and come back Monday morning. So I'd, what I'd do is I'd get on the boat Friday afternoon, take like an hour of ninku, like leave, and then go to, go to the mainland in Okinawa. Um, and then I would go to a military base and teach military guys jujitsu and started training through there and met more people that were training other martial arts and started doing that. Um, then when I finished, when I finished my sort of stint as an English teacher for the jet program, I moved into, moved on to the mainland in Okinawa and opened my own gym and started training there as well. So yeah, sort of pushed me into opening my own gym over there. Awesome. Had you had you trained many people prior to going to Japan? Um, I think that like they sort of encouraged teaching in jiu-jitsu quite early on. Um, I I did train with some friends in Wellington uh, that I was sort of teaching when I was a blue belt, but you know, I don't know how well my quality of teaching was back when I was a blue belt. But um, I'd been teaching. I'd been teaching a little bit, but yeah, when I was living on the island, it was very difficult for me to actually train. Um, the, hence, the reason why I went to to the mainland. Mm. And what, um, like, in terms of the in terms of the belt system, where where are you at the moment? I'm a black belt. Yeah, yep. I'm a black belt. Yeah. Cool. So, well, sorry, carry on. Oh, so Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt takes like about 10 years, right? Um, a little bit longer than most martial arts. So uh, to those of us who are not Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu people, it's, you'll meet the very rare exceptional people that can get to black belt level in five years or so. Um, but the most of us, it takes like you'd expect 10, 12, 15 years to achieve a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, yeah. Okay. How long, have you been a, how long have you been a black belt for? Uh, I got my black belt, uh, was it last year or the year before? Um, I think maybe last year uh, in October. Yeah, it must yeah. have been last year in October, yeah. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. It's really weird. It's an awkward thing because you spend all this time waiting to get to achieve something. Like For me, a black belt was a major life goal, right? learning a language, getting my degree. Um, I'm trying to learn a trade at the moment, so it's one of my, my life things. Um, but when I got my black belt, I didn't really care about it anymore. You know, it was, I'd already realized that there was more to the journey, I think, than, than getting the black belt. Uh, it was funny because my instructor said to me when I dropped him off after the seminar, usually the seminar that he gave when I got my black belt, he said, oh, enjoy sleeping next to your belt tonight. 
and I, when he, and he walked off and I was sitting, sitting there thinking, I don't know how I feel about this. I don't, I don't know if I feel like I, it's, I'm so happy about it that I'm going to sleep in a bed with this inanimate object. That's, that's just a representation of time spent training. It's very, yeah, it's quite a funny thing getting your black belt. Mm, mm, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting way to, to look at it actually is that, yeah, that, that stuff is just the, the representation of, of all the work that you've, you've put in mm. and yeah, if you're kind of just hanging out for that at the end, that inanimate object mm. for your 10 years work, then I think, and not enjoying the work along the way, mm. then you're going to live a reasonably unfulfilling life, I think, yeah. if, it's, if I, things only come around every 10 years that you enjoy. Yeah, I. it's really interesting. I My brown belt is really haggard, and I love that belt. I, you know, I... That bout is it's ripped apart. It's falling apart. It's got sweat and blood stains on it. It's just it's destroyed. I'll I'll send you a photo of this thing. But I love that bout. That bout I really care about because it is actually you can see like the experiences that I've had in the bout. So I don't know. For me, it's more of a representation of my experiences in jujitsu than the new belt that I've got, you know what I mean? Like mm. it has more meaning. I'm sure that in the future, my black belt is going to be even worse. It's even going to be more ripped up and destroyed, but it's still not covered in the battle scars of my brown belt. You know, it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. Um, what was, what was opening a business like in Japan and opening a gym like in Japan? Oh, it was, it was crazy. Um, surprisingly easy um like it was very difficult to teach on the military bases so uh they had like their own instructors and things like that um and it was very cutthroat so i started teaching brazilian jiu-jitsu when bjj just started to move there for the for the non-japanese people there was japanese people there teaching in japanese before a lot of us um but not a lot of people's teaching in English and not a lot of teach people teaching off the military races. Just just so we're the the islands in Okinawa, like a third of them are taken up by American military bases. So it's a lit, it's an infrastructure nightmare for them and over there and there are like other accidents, but that's where a lot of the money is. Okinawa is the poorest sort of prefecture in Japan. Um, so if you want people to pay like a premium for classes, then a lot of people were trying to get on the military bases. My gym was down the street from a military base um, and in between sort of the university as well. Um, but starting it, I just found the spot um, near where we were renting a house. Um, it, was, it was, I think it was 30 square meters. So it was tiny. This gym was tiny. Um, but we had the space built lockers, uh, had a toilet and a shower in there, which is all you really need. Um, I used to pull the glass doors off the front so so we didn't put our feet and arms through the glass windows <laughs> yeah. um, and just just opened up. And we were doing really well. We were doing really well um, competitively. With the business was doing really well. Um, and my students are still there. Um, my students are still – they're not in, in that building anymore, but they're still training really regularly. So that's that's really cool that that's still there. That's awesome, mate. Um, and how did like you're you're back in New Zealand now? You're back in Whangarei, and yeah, you have a you have a gym up there as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, how was like 
Did you start your gym up in Whangarei or did you kind of jump into an an existing one? Well, yeah. So there was a group of guys training at uh, a gym when I first got here. Um, And it was really strange because the guy that was teaching the classes, I called up. I moved back to New Zealand because I I got a divorce. I was in a bit of a bad headspace and uh, I I was just like, I need to do something. So I I found the JITS gym, gave them a call. Uh, The instructor said to me, oh, you should come down to this tournament this weekend. Come and check it out. Um, and I was like, okay, sounds good. Uh, then he called me back like 10 minutes later and he's like, oh, I'm leaving soon. Are you interested in taking over responsibility for teaching the classes? And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, it was perfect for me really. Um, I just kind of walked into it. Um, I think we were in the, the original gym that I started teaching at for about three weeks, four weeks, uh, before we had too many people to to sort of sustain the space. So we moved to a bigger gym, um, which has subsequently gone under. But uh, it seems like a, a regular thing in Northland is that gyms get started and then go under. But uh, I was sort of on the hunt when I knew that the other place was in financial strife. So uh, I found I found this space here and I've got 90 square meters of mats now and a beautiful place and it's sunny and there's like a lot of ventilation and yeah, it's got everything I need and showers and bathrooms and changing rooms and all that sort of jazz. So Cool, man. And like, what's the, what are some of the big differences uh, of doing business in New Zealand compared to in Japan? Oh, Japanese people are way more respectful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, Japanese people sort of, they won't barter as much. Um, It's much easier uh, to sort of, it's really weird because it's much easier to communicate with people because in Japan, they, they have this sort of, way of explaining their position very honestly and very directly and you can see what their intentions are and they're they're very loyal customers uh i think in new zealand people are people look for a lot of people looking for like the cheap the cheap sort of training or uh they're not looking for high quality classes and they're not demanding like because there's not a lot of competition for brazilian jiu-jitsu uh i think that they New Zealanders don't appreciate the quality of some of the instructors, perhaps, uh, that you get in Japan. Like in Japan, everyone calls you like sensei or professor, right? If you're a black belt, um, in New Zealand, everyone calls you by your first name. So the, the sort of relationships that you have with your clients is very, very different compared to the relationships that you'd have with people in the New Zealand sort of gyms. Yeah. Mm, Interesting. Um, and James, are you, you still compete yourself? Um, I haven't competed since uh, the year before last. I was training with one of my long-time training partners, and I, I did a bridge, which is, for those who don't know what bridging is, you're, you're putting your shoulder on the, on the ground and putting your feet as close as you can to your hips and, and basically catapulting your hips off the mat into the air. I did that and tore uh, a hernia open. So I had surgery on that, and I wasn't allowed to compete. I wasn't supposed to do training either, but uh, it's pretty hard to avoid not training when your job is teaching Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, so I haven't competed for about a year and a half. Actually, 
no, it'll be about a year because I competed uh, before I had my surgery. So, um, yeah, I, I have competed quite a lot. I've done a lot of competitions in Japan, uh, a few in Australia, and I've only done one in New Zealand because of my uh, surgery. So uh, I've got to do a little bit more competition, but it's it's tricky to find people to fight in New Zealand, to be honest. Um, it's tricky to find uh, people in the same weight class and in black belt. Um, in Australia, there's a lot more people training. In Japan, there's a lot more people in my weight class. Um, so uh, the competition here is reasonably sparse. <laughs> yeah. 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 What, do you, what do you enjoy about the competition aspect of it? Uh, I don't know if I enjoy it at all, to be honest. Um, I think for me, it's something that you need to do because – you are pushing yourself to the absolute limits of what you can do physically and you're going to identify weaknesses in your jiu-jitsu if you lose. Um, I think a lot of people focus primarily on winning and the goal The goal of this kind of comes into the my sort of philosophy about the bouts and training and stuff like that. But a lot of people focus a lot on winning and you can enjoy victory, but I think that you learn a lot more if you lose. Um, and I think that that's, that's one of these sort of resilience or persistence or building exercises is like your anti-fragility, if you like. Like, how do you deal with losing? How do you deal with uh, your faults in your martial arts or whatever? You know, it could be a metaphor for anything, right? Yeah, mate. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you're exactly right. That if all you do is win, yeah. then again, you're not going to learn that much about yourself. You'll, you'll probably learn a bit, but it's those it's those losses or those failures or those those hard bits that actually you learn so much more about yourself and you develop so much more in terms of who you are as a person, but also how you how you practice and how you show up. Yeah. I think there's a, like an emotional strength associated with people that compete quite regularly in like martial arts because. If you train for three months and you're dieting and you're like in the best shape you can possibly be and you go into a tournament or something and you just you, – you make a mistake or your opponent does something that you've never seen before, that's not something you can, you can prepare yourself for. So it can be – you can be very emotional after losing a competition. Um, it's, you see like the toughest guys with cauliflower ears that are like 160 kilograms like crying because they lost a match because they're dealing with like the emotion of the experience and stuff like that. It's it's really interesting because you'll meet guys who will win and the person they'll lose and they're immediately really good friends because they've had this really like crazy experience together and things like that. So yeah, I don't know. I think it builds very strong characters. I think Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very cool. Um, in terms of like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, is it for everybody or are there kind of certain people that you would point in that direction or certain people that you say, nah, don't, don't go down that track? I think I think that if you if you're not a little bit uh, masochistic, you probably won't survive. Um, the dropout rates are amazing. Um, it's very very difficult. Um, I think it's probably one of the most challenging things people could try to do, um, but in a way, it's the most rewarding. Um, I I think that anyone can do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I believe that. Uh, 
a five-year-old kid all the way through to a to an 80-year-old man can do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've met guys in Japan that are in their 80s that are still training. It's amazing. Um, but it's it's a difficult journey. It's it's the first six months are the worst experience of your life. You will be crushed. You will be bruised. You will be, you know, sweating people will drip on you. You know, I've had people drip sweat in my eye. Um, I just crazy stuff. I've sweat drip in my mouth actually while I was teaching ones. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a very, very intense experience, but because it's such an intense experience, uh, it's very difficult for you. Uh, it's very easy for you to forget about experiences in daily life that are bothering to you. It's very, it's it, basically it's extreme, uh, complex solving and, uh, like, really really high levels of stress um and it's very hard for you to think about oh i need to buy petrol or i need to cook dinner or i had a bad day at work when someone's literally sitting on top of your chest trying to choke the life out of you you forget about all the periphery um of your experiences in life and you can just focus on trying to survive and i think that sort of frees you up in a sort of meditative way um there's a I can't remember the term in positive psychology about it. It's like when you were talking about the the sunset at night. You're experiencing yourself and you're experiencing your body and the sights around you. I think in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you're just so tightly bound into one experience that it it strips away a lot of the the negativity. I think and other experiences in your life that sh- which may intrude upon your consciousness. You know, so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, like a massive kind of training of training of focus and training of presence. That's it. That's it. Yeah, cool, um, James. I want to ask you a few questions, mate. That I ask everyone towards the mm-hmm. towards the end of the chat. Um, yeah. The first one is: What was the last uncomfortable thing that you did, and how did you get through it? Uh, the last uncomfortable thing that I did is probably last night's training. Um, I think I tore a muscle in my side earlier in the week. Um, and basically what I did was, uh, just keep training. I didn't give up, uh, for me, not giving up is very important. Yeah. So just fought through it, I guess is the best way to answer it succinctly. Okay. And how are you going with that at the moment? This is with speaking with my physio hat on. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, it feels pretty good today. It was a little bit swollen yesterday after, after sparring, um, but it looks pretty good today. It's not bothering me so much. Okay. That's good, mate. That's good. Keep icing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rice, right? Rice, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, hard to compress uh, side muscles, though. James, yes, what's, the, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do, and why is that uncomfortable for you? Oh, what is the next uncomfortable thing that I'm going to do? Um, I am going to train in Sydney with some of my training partners from Japan, uh, some of my training partners in Australia, and it's the biggest group of of black belts that we've had together as a team coming up uh, in March, Um, and everyone's training to compete. So I'm expecting that to be one of the worst experiences in my life, but one of the most rewarding experiences in my life. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. And yeah, so often they're, they're coupled together, aren't they? That's right. Um, James, do you have any, any other strategies that you use to approach uncomfortable situations? 
I think that understanding that there is light at the end of the tunnel is very important for any sort of positive outlook in life and never giving up and focusing focusing on the fact that what you're experiencing at the time is not going to be experienced forever. So uh, moving past that and thinking about the future can be very good for a positive outlook in life and for training or whatever your life life experiences are. Cool. That's a that's a great strategy, James. I've got a couple more quick questions for you, mate. Um, but I just want to say, take a moment to say uh, say thanks for sitting down and having a bit of a chat with me this morning. It's been cool to cool to reconnect with you after such a such a long time. But also thank you so much for um, teaching teaching people, especially especially kids. A lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today is being being present, taking joy from the process, and um, uh, and just yeah, kind of enjoying the path because I think that's that's often something that gets overlooked in um, sort of more, the more traditional educational system. So thank you so much for for that, mate. Listen. Because I think I think it's my pleasure, first of all, everything for for having a chat to you and having the chance to reconnect. I'd like to thank you for taking time uh, and me jiggling around the times and stuff to call me. Um, but listen, I think that that there's a real deficit in male role models for for kids, including myself. And I think that uh, if you can get out there and have a positive influence on on people and show show particularly kids that like what they're experiencing at the time is not the be all and end all. You know, it's not it's not like it's a hard job to to teach and enjoy seeing improvements in other people. You know, I'm sure you get the same enjoyment, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, mate. Cool. No, well, well said, um, James. If people are if people are kind of digging on your stuff and what you've been talking about, or wanna or wanna come down and train with you, like what's the what's the best way for them to to connect or or support you? Uh, I guess I guess for me, like I've got an Instagram account. It's uh, Fangaroo BJJ. I'm on the social media. So. Whangarei Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well. Um, we just train down in Whangarei. We're open uh, all all weekdays at the moment, and we'll start doing weekends. We do private sort of classes on the weekends as well. But, yeah, just hit me up on social media. It's probably the easiest way to do it, yeah. Awesome, mate. Sounds good. And before we tie this off, do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? Oh, a challenge. I would like to challenge you to learn... 10 phrases in Japanese. 10 phrases in Japanese. 10 phrases in Japanese. Yeah, I want to have a 10-phrase conversation with you in the future in Japanese, Chris. Okay, mate. That's, uh, that sounds good. That sounds good. I don't know if I'll be able to do it in a week, but we'll, we'll have a go. <laughs> you can't do it, man. You can't do it. Okay. I, believe in, I believe in it. Uh, arigato gozaimasu, Cherry-san. Thank you for yeah. getting uncomfortable with me today. Kochira koso. My pleasure. My pleasure, my friend. Thank you.